All right, so Hebrews, Hebrews chapter two, we're gonna, we're gonna continue our, our sermon series in the, the, the study through Hebrews. And again, the, the title for this morning's sermon is The Son Who Suffered, The Son Who Suffered. So I don't know if, if, if you all are aware, but we have these, these kind of worship cards. There's half sheets of cardstock. We, they're on one of those tables. Um, but, but if that's helpful, we have a lot left over a week. And I don't know if we're just overestimating or if you guys just aren't aware. These, these are tools um, for you, except for on a day when, when it doesn't go according to plan. Um, but the title for today's sermon is The Son Who Suffered Death. And, and the focus is on the death of the son, the suffering of the son. And so in the context of Hebrews, the author has been making the argument that through the son, think back to chapter one, through the son, through his life and ministry, God has spoken. And and the, the author has made the point that God has spoken finally. And the last word, the author has said, the last word has come from God to us and it's come through the son, who we understand to be Jesus. Right, so, so although Jesus, the first time the name Jesus is going to occur in the book of Hebrews is in our passage this morning, but we know that the Son is Jesus as we read. And so the, the authority, the superiority, superiority of the Son has been the focus over these past several weeks. Um, and over the last two weeks especially, the, this superior, superiority over the angels has been the focus of our author. And last week we saw that Jesus took on flesh, that he became a man, that he was in the words of Hebrews, for a little while made lower than the angels. And the result of him becoming a man was his suffering and his death. It was the suffering of death. He tasted death for everyone, as verse 9 of chapter 2 said. And it's the result of his death, his suffering, that he was raised and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is where the book of Hebrews started in verse 4 of chapter 1. And so this trajectory has been clearly laid out. To put it succinctly, his exaltation is the result of his humiliation. He doesn't reign or rule unless he suffers and dies. And so his suffering of death is what leads to his rule and reign. He humbled himself and as a result has been highly exalted. This is a core conviction of the Christian faith. And this shapes knowing the result of his death and his suffering. It shapes how we view his death. This is why the death of Christ is something that we rejoice in. I mean, have you ever thought how strange it might seem to someone who's not a Christian? You keep singing about someone's death. That's strange. You wear wear crosses around your neck. You have have pictures of crosses on your walls. Or or maybe they drive by on Fox Road and say, those are three crosses in their front yard. What in the world is that about? It, it, It seems strange to the outsider. But we as Christians recognize that that, that the death of Christ is worth rejoicing in. And we're not just happy that someone died, right? That's not it. We rejoice because someone's death has led to a victory, a deliverance that could not have come any other way. Which is why, not only is it true that without, without the cross, there is no crown. It's also true to say that without the cross, there's no gospel, there's no Christianity, The suffering of the son, the death of the son is indispensable to the Christian faith. And so the author of Hebrews in our passage this morning wants to make sure that we recognize the significance of that suffering. He wants to make sure that we don't misunderstand the suffering of the son because the suffering of the son, it wasn't wasn't a tragic turn of events. It wasn't an an unfortunate series of occurrences. It's not a declaration that God has lost That's not what the death of Christ means, but instead the suffering of the son, the death of the son is part of God's eternal plan 
which was an eternal plan to save his people through the death of the son who suffered. So, so that's what we're going to look at. So, so let me read our passage. It's Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 10 and read through the end of chapter 2, which is verse 18. So Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse 18. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, quote, I will put my trust in him. And again, quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Well, here is our outline uh, for today, so, so we have, there's going to be four points as we walk, walk through, and they all have to do with the son's suffering, and we're going to work through uh, one point at a time. So first we'll see the son's suffering in God's plan, that's there in verse 10. Then we'll see the son's suffering in his solidarity with humanity, that's verses 11 through 13. Then we'll see thirdly the son's suffering and the destruction of death, that's verses 14 through 16. And then finally, the son's suffering in his service to God there in verses 17 through 18. So, so that's, that's our map for today. So let's start there in verse 10, the son's suffering and God's plan. And so here, the first verse, verse 10, we see kind of, kind of an overview, a brief summary of God's plan. And we see that there's an appropriateness to what has happened in the son's suffering of death. So, so if you remember back a bit in verse 9 of chapter 2, right, the, the son tasted death for everyone and, and it was described as, as by the grace of God that he might taste death, death for everyone. And so here in a continuation of this is the grace of God at work, the continuation of that thought, the author wants to put further emphasis on the death of Christ, that it was part of God's plan, a, a revelation, if you will, of God's grace. So verse 10, look there at verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting, it is said. It was, it was fitting. Why? The answer is as he continues, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory it was fitting that he, he the creator of the entire universe and, and the one for whom everything and everyone was created, it was fitting for him, that's the one, it was fitting for him to make the founder or the captain or the, the pioneer of salvation perfect through suffering. And so I think the point that, that he's, he's making here is that the God who made all things, specifically the God who made all people, it is fitting for him to save his people however he wants. Right? He's God and it's fitting for him to save people however he desires. 
And so when we consider the suffering in the death of the son, we cannot consider it rightly or accurately without recognizing the nature and identity of the one who planned it. That this salvation doesn't just drop out of the sky out of nowhere. This is, this is a plan devised by the creator of the universe, the, the maker of us. He says, this is how I'm going to save my people. And so the purpose of verse 10 is to show how fitting this method of salvation is. It's a fitting plan. God determined to save his people. He continues how through the suffering of his son. It's fitting because it is God's plan. And this plan, it's fitting. And notice how it's described there in verse 10. It's described as both bringing many sons to glory. And it's described as accomplishing their, the sons it is, their salvation. And so this plan is the plan of salvation, bringing many sons to glory in in their salvation. And so God's grace, which was the reason for the son tasting death for everyone, is also the motivation behind his bringing many sons to glory. It's the motivation behind the salvation of God's people. It's God's grace. You are saved by grace. The son suffered because God is gracious. He, He was crucified and mocked in your place, despised, shamed because of God's grace. This is the motivating engine behind this plan of salvation. What makes this even more amazing is that in light of what we've already established about the Son, his identity as the second person of the Trinity, as the Lord himself, is that what we see here is that by this fitting plan, the creator also becomes the redeemer. I mean, that's amazing. The creator is the one who enters in to the broken world and actually saves the people. The God who made us is the God who saves us. There's unity within the, the triune God. So God not, only cre- God not only creates us, but God devises a plan to save us. And it, it's not someone else that he, he assigns to do his dirty work of suffering and dying. No, he himself accomplishes that plan. And this plan involved the son being made perfect through suffering. That, that, that's the, suffering is the means of, of the son being perfected. Now the word perfect, it doesn't mean that, that the son was lacking something in an ethical sense. It's not that the son, when he becomes a man, is lacking some moral perfection or that he had to, something had to be made, made up for or corrected. There, there's nothing wrong with the son when he takes on flesh. So, so the perfection here, it's not moral or ethical. For, for in this sense, hopefully you know that Jesus in this sense was, was always perfect. Now, that's part of what it means to be fully God. He he doesn't lack anything. Instead, the point here, the the idea being conveyed is that Jesus was made perfect in the sense of being brought to a certain completeness associated with the fulfillment of God's plan. He was made perfect. He was completed. The the, the plan was finalized in his suffering. It's like if you commission a painting and and when it's finished, you see it and you say, well, that, that is perfect. Well, it's not as though you saw it before and it was lacking. No, this fits the need. It, it fulfills your plan, the vision you had for this room or whatever the case may be. It's, it's perfect because it fits the need. Jesus fulfilled the plan. He was made perfect for this plan. He was the perfect sacrifice. And it's through the suffering that brought about the end or completion of God's plan for the son. He doesn't just send the son here to, to proclaim a message. No, he sends a son here to suffer and die which is part of the bigger point in the book of Hebrews, that the suffering, the, the, the being made, made for a little while lower than angels, that this doesn't mean that he's inferior to angels. It's not a sign of weakness or loss. 
Instead, his being made a little lower than angels for a while was a fulfillment of God's great salvation by his grace to save his people. So, so that's how we locate the incarnation. It's part of God's fitting plan. That's why the son suffered. But that's not all our passage says about the son suffering. Look there at verses 11 through 13. He also locates the son's solidarity with humanity in his suffering. So not only was the suffering a fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, his suffering also required the son becoming a man. You might say his suffering necessitated the incarnation. It is the incarnation that, that solidifies the son with humanity. He becomes a man and he suffers because his suffering is to save man. We saw that last week. He became a man in order to identify with and save humanity. And this, this gets us to, 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 the, to, the, to the fundamental, to a fundamental doctrine, a crucial doctrine, an essential Christian belief regarding the, the nature of this son, the nature of Jesus Christ on the earth. And, and we just, I, we have to know, you have to be aware that the testimony of the church historically for all of its existence has been that the person of Christ was fully God and fully man or, or truly God and truly man. There, there were two natures in the one human person. Right? This is what the church has believed and the church has believed this because this is not only the testimony of the church but it's the testimony of the scriptures. God's word clearly teaches in, in, in a number of passages and there's passages that hit on both. That, that he's fully human. He's truly human. He experiences things that only humans experience. And there's passages that say he's, he's fully divine. There's things ascribed to him that can only be ascribed rightly to God. So both are true. Fully man and fully God. Jesus was fully divine and fully human. That, that is what the church has believed. That is, that is part of the identity of the son who suffered. And throughout the history of the church, there's been a tendency, so, so we think of, think of this truth, this orthodox path, as, as somewhat narrow, and there's been a, a tendency throughout the history of the church to, to veer from this doctrine, either, either to the ditch on this side or to the ditch on this side. And, and so we have this, 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 this tender recognition of, of two natures, one person, and, and the veering is typically either to deny the true divinity of the Son, he wasn't truly God, he, he wasn't God, he's just a man, right? So, so there's all kinds of variations of this. So that's the one side. Or this side, you deny, he wasn't really human. God can't become a man, right? So, so they, these are two dangerous ditches that we have to seek, governed by scripture, to stay within, to stay out of the ditches because both are true. And so we hold them and say, this is what the Bible says, this is who Jesus was, so this is what we believe. And so if you remember several weeks ago, the first a few verses of Hebrews describe the Son as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we, we made very clear, hopefully, that, that he is truly God because those things are true only of God. And so the true divinity of the Son was focused on there in chapter 1. But here, in this section, as the book of Hebrews is, is, is getting ready to undergo a shift towards the, the earthly ministry of the Son, the shift requires a focus on the true humanity of the Son. And that's the point here in verses 11 through 13. The point being made here is that the Son had to be made like man in order to save man. Look, look there at verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And so I, I think this means he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, his people, all have one source, which I take it to mean that they are all of one family. There, there's a common humanity. 
Jesus becomes a real man. He shares in the source, the, the, the human nature. He was really a man, not a mirage, not a spirit, not an angel, but a human being, just like Adam. He was as much human as Adam was human. He was fully human. And that's what the book of Hebrews is, is focusing on here. And, and in fact, church history, if you love history, or church history specifically, you, you know that our, the history of the church is filled with men and women who have fought and given their lives fighting for maintaining this doctrine of the true humanity and the true divinity. And so one of the fo- most famous statements regarding the true humanity of the Son comes from a church father named Gregory of Nazianzus. I think that's right. But all the way back in the 4th century, there was this, the uh, um, Cappadocian fathers, and, and so Gregory was, Gregory of Nazianzus, Nazianzus was one of these three fathers. But writing all the way back in the 4th century, he's writing against a man named Apollinarius, and, and he, he taught a doctrine called Apollinarianism, which basically, it's more nuanced than this, but he basically said Jesus was not truly human. Right? So, so there was a, a very, um, maybe, uh, convoluted discussion or argument where, where it gets very nuanced, but, but by and large, he says Jesus was not truly human. That couldn't happen. There's this divine mind that took on a human body. And, and so there, there was separate separation because God and man couldn't be joined. But so, so Gregory uh, in, I'll call him, he's writing against this teaching. And listen to what he says. This is a powerful quote talking about why Jesus had to be fully human. He says, for that which he has not assumed he has not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is saved. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of human nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. And so you notice he, he, what he has not assumed, he has not healed. There, there's this identification that, that the son takes, he, he takes on the full human nature because the full human nature is that which is corrupted. And so he's not fully human. He can't save that which he has not become. That's why the son had to become a man and suffer as a man. Right? It, it's necessary for our salvation. So, so the implication would be to deny the full humanity of, of Jesus would deny the ability for him to atone for the sins of his people. So this is a doctrine that, is, that, is, that the gospel is, is built upon. If you lose this, you do lose the gospel. You don't have a Jesus who can save you. And so this is why the, these men and women give their lives for this. And they fight for this. And they have councils to discuss this because, because it, is a, a, it is, a, is worth thinking about. And so the author of Hebrews here in verse 11 and 12, look at 11 and 12, he's going back to the Old Testament, but he's making a similar point, this, this relationship between the Son and humanity. So, so look back there at verse 11. For he sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, now he, he first quote verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so we're going to see the author's Christocentric view of Psalm, this is Psalm 22, and it's his Christocentric view. And so the author here, if you go back to Psalm 22, it's not Jesus. Right? There's just a psalmist saying, I will tell your, your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. But he quotes that because the hearers of this psalm would immediately know that Psalm 22 has, had always been identified with the suffering and the death of Jesus. And so Psalm 22, you may not be familiar with this quote, but the, the first verse of Psalm 22 
starts this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now where have you heard that? Right, that that's the gospels. That's Jesus on the cross. Identifying with the sufferer of Psalm 22. And so these words, as, because they're quoted by Jesus on the cross, the, the, the apostles, the early church, understood Psalm 22 in a Christocentric way, as Jesus as the fulfillment of that, which simply means that they understood that Jesus is the fulfillment or the, the, the ultimate speaker of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was realized in his suffering and his death. And so that's why all the way down in verse 22 is quoted here, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And so the author, knowing that his audience is going to identify Jesus as the speaker, says, listen, Jesus is like us. Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. When we read Psalm 22 in light of Christ, we can say, well, Jesus understood himself to have brothers. That the Messiah had, had brothers, fellow members of his family. And that's the point he's trying to make, that Jesus is like us. In other words, the humiliation of Christ, the incarnation, is, is, is Jesus becoming one of us. He's not ashamed to identify with us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. There's a shared relationship. In other words, it's not like the, maybe the rich, powerful elitist who, who refuses to identify with, with those who are inferior or who are underneath. Maybe in military you have that. You have the, the high ranking. You said, you're just, you're just a mere petty little officer. I'm not going to identify with you. I'm staying in, in my office. I'm staying in my section of the ship. I'm, I, don't, I don't know anything about military, but, but I'm sure that it's at work there. Right? Where there's the, the, the powerful look down and say, I'm not going to associate with you. That's not how it is with Jesus. He's not ashamed to identify with us. He's not embarrassed to identify with his brothers. He identifies with our humanity. And then that this same, same point is made in verse 13. And so he, he's not in a psalm anymore. Instead, he goes to Isaiah 8, which again, Isaiah 8 would have been identified with the suffering, the death of Jesus. I think that's his point in bringing these in. When he says again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And both these are found in Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, like I said, is, would have been identified with the suffering of the Messiah. In fact, all the way up in, in, verse, or, or in verse 14 of Isaiah 8, the, there's the, they're talking about the stone of offense, the rock of stumbling, which, which the Apostle Paul would pick up when it comes to the, the death of Christ, is, is a stone of offense, a, a rock of stumbling. And so I think the context here, Isaiah 8 is also identified with the suffering of the Messiah. And so looking to Psalm, or, or Isaiah 8, quoting those two verses here, I will put my trust in him, behold, I and the children God has given me, is, is the similar, uh, for the similar, similar reason of the son identifying, being understood as a speaker, identifying with his brothers, with his family, with the children that God has given me. And so in, Psalm, or in Isaiah 8, it's, it's the one who puts his trust in God. And so Jesus, as the truster, was also in familial relationships with others, his family. And so, quoting Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, I think the author of Hebrews is saying that the Son identified with humanity. He became a man and lived among God's people. And he suffered and he trusted God in the midst of his suffering. And so the argument is that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The Son became a man and suffered. He's not ashamed to be identified with humanity. The son became a man and identified with his brothers and sisters. There's solidarity there, but that's not all. Look, look thirdly, verses 14 through 16, there, there's another point made. 
It wasn't just to identify with humanity that the son becomes flesh, but it, it's, he goes further to say that it's a purposeful incarnation, that he's going to accomplish something. So look there at verse 14. He continues, and he highlights the son's suffering and the destruction of death. Verse 14, since, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here's the reason that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And this is another effect. And he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So his identification with humanity is still obviously in focus here, but the purpose of his incarnation is explained. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That the one shared source, the one common humanity, and why that happened, why he became like us, was to die, and that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And so the author is saying that, that, that Jesus partook of flesh, that Jesus became a man in order to die. And that the death of Christ was intended to destroy something. It was intended to destroy someone, namely the devil. And so again, how we understand the death of Christ, this influences it. it it's not that the Roman government went, went haywire and, and they committed a, a, big, a big boo-boo and off and, and offset God's plan for eternity. No, they were acting in accord with God's foreknowledge, with God's preordained, predestined plan that the son would suffer. And he does so to destroy the one who has the power of death. The death of Christ was to destroy the devil who has the power of death. And, and the devil can be described this way because he is the one, think back to Genesis 3, who introduced sin into the world. It is through him as a serpent that sin comes into the world. He's the one who's identified as the prince of this world or the god of this age. He has real power and authority in this fallen world. He's the one behind the reign of sin and death in this world. And so he is the one who has the power of death. Or should I say he had the power of death? Because the author says that he is the one who's destroyed by the word becoming flesh and dying on the cross. Which is quite the paradox, right? The devil's power was found in the rule and reign of death and it was the death of the son that destroyed the devil and his power. Do you see the, the paradox there? It was the death of the son that destroyed the devil and his power. And another church father Chrysostom put it this way. He said, here the author of Hebrews points out the wonder that by that through which the devil prevailed, the devil himself was overcome. That by which the devil prevailed, namely death, is that by which the devil was overcome. By the very thing that was the devil's strong weapon against the world, which was death, by that very thing Christ struck him. In this, Christ exhibits the greatness of the conqueror's power. Do you see what great goodness death has wrought? There's great goodness in the death of the Son. It was the incarnation and the subsequent death of the Son that were all part of God's fitting plan that destroyed the devil and destroyed the power of sin and death. And so Satan is destroyed. That's good news. Now, now just to clarify, it, it, this does not mean destroyed as in non-existent. That's not what destroyed means. The context makes that very clear. The emphasis is not that he doesn't exist anymore. He still exists. In fact, he could be said to be prowling around like a roaring lion. He's been destroyed in the sense that he no longer has power. 
His weapons have no ammunition. The word destroyed means to deprive someone, something or someone of its power. And so because of the death of Christ, Satan has lost his power. Because his power was located in the reign of sin and the penalty of death. And in the death of Christ, death itself has died. In the death of Christ, the power of sin has been paid for. And so the death of the Son has accomplished this. The evil tyrant stranglehold on humanity has been broken. It's broken completely. But that's not all that the death of Christ has done. Also, verse 15 continues, he, he died to, to deliver, to deliver someone to some people. Deliverance is procured. Freedom is accomplished. So the death of Christ has destroyed Satan's power, fallen humanity, but it's also freed those, namely us, God's people, who were previously under Satan's power, slaves of sin and Satan. And so the death of Christ accomplishes that. It's the incarnation of the Son, which is what led to the death of the Son, which is what was necessary for the salvation of God's people. And so this is the good news of the gospel. Death and sin have been rendered powerless because of the death of the Son. This doesn't mean that the salvation that's come through Christ frees us from death, right? We, we still die. We're still all going to die. Every single person in this room is, is going to die one day. So we're not freed from, from the effects of, of death here on this earth. But the death of Christ, faith in him and faith in, in his substitutionary death on our behalf frees us from, notice the language, the fear of death. Because Christ died, we're not terrorized by Satan or sin or death. We don't have to be afraid of death. We're not terrorized because there's no power in those things anymore. Those things can't separate us from the love of God that's been shown to us in Christ Jesus. There's no power in those things. At least there's no power in those things for those who are saved through the death of the Son. And this is a major difference between someone who's been delivered from the fear of death and someone who hasn't. Because those are two types of people in this world that exist now. The world is filled with those on this side who have not yet been delivered from the fear of death. Those who aren't trusting in the Son. Those whose sins haven't been forgiven. Those who haven't been delivered from slavery in the fear of death. And for those, death is a fearful thing. And it ought to be. For those, uncertainty in the face of death is unbearable. And yet day after day after day after day, men and women and boys and girls and grandmas and grandpas die. Afraid of death. They, they, they enter into that which they are afraid of because they refuse to come to Christ and be found in him and they're conquered by death and they do so in fear, uncertain of what comes next. It is, it is fearful to face death not knowing what's on the other side. And we ought to recognize this would be the lot of every single human in this world if the son had not suffered. That we would, we would face our inevitable death with great fear if the son had not suffered and died conquering death and Satan. This uncertainty, this fear would characterize every single person's fundamental pr perspective on death if the son had not taken on flesh, become a man and died. But he has and he did, and in doing so, he destroyed Satan and delivered us from lifelong slavery to death. One church father, again, explains, before we feared and we tried to avoid death as the supreme and invincible evil, and that, that's those who don't know Christ, 
feared and trying to avoid death as a supreme and invincible evil, but now we perceive it as a prelude transition into the superior life and we accept this joyously from those who persecute us for the sake of Christ and his commandments. So, so once we avoided it as the supreme and invincible evil, but now we perceive it as a prelude transition into the superior life. Right? That death is, is, an, is gateway into life and joy, eternal, everlasting. It is not to be feared. Now, now I will say the early church had, had quite a perspective on suffering and martyrdom. Some, so if you read some of the, some of the like Fox's book, The Martyrs, or, or other of these eyewitness accounts, some of the early Christians, it's like they, they couldn't wait. They, they enjoyed, they had pleasure from, from dying. Right? Now that's not us, right? And that, some of that is unhealthy. They seem to love martyrdom, long for it a little too much. But the point of the quote is to highlight that we once feared and tried to avoid death, but now, knowing Christ, death does not have to be feared because it's transition into life with God forever. It's not to be feared or avoided. The death of the Son completely transforms our perspective on sin and death. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making. And then in verse 16, I think he draws what, what we can affirm as an obvious conclusion. After all this focus on the identification of, of the Son with humanity, all that's been discussed, the incarnation, he says, angels are not the ones who benefit from the salvation of the Son. Instead, verse 16, surely it's not the angels. Don't you see? Angels are not helped, but it's the offspring of Abraham. It's humans. It's those who are share in, in the lineage of Abraham. And it is this help that the son offers to the offspring of Abraham that transitions to the last section, verses 17 and 18, final point, the son's suffering in his service to God. So, so again, this is a transition to the, the next section of Hebrews. But in these two verses, the apostle illustrates what he had taught before and confirms what he'd asserted concerning the son's participation of flesh and blood in the same way as the children. And so he just reaffirms what he's just been saying about the identification of the son with humanity. And he uses these last verses to transition to the most significant section of the letter. And so, so the next couple of weeks will be on kind of a, a subsection, but then beginning in chapter four of Hebrews all the way through chapter 10 of Hebrews, the focus is going to be on the, the, the position of the son as the great high priest. So the high priestly ministry is going to be the main focus. In fact, I'd say that is the main focus of all of Hebrews, but especially the, the biggest section of Hebrews in chapters four all the way through 10. And so this is a transition and so verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's, that's what the high priest does. In verse 18, for because he helps, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He had to become a man, had to be made truly human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And he does that. He acts as high priest by making propitiation for the sins of his people. Or another translation puts it by making atonement, payment for the sins of the people. The point being that Jesus paid for the sins of the people. Again, that's the reason that he came and suffered to die for the sins of his people. Not by offering a, a lamb or a goat or any other animal, but by offering himself the pure and spotless sacrifice. And again, much more will be said about that in the coming weeks. But these functions, these actions are performed by the incarnate son. And they're only possible because the son became like us. He can't be our high priest if he wasn't fully human. So the full humanity of Jesus is what enables him to perform the functions of the high priest. 
And so he will, and again, like I said, we'll get much more into the role of the high priest. And, and, and what, what we're going to see is that all that came before, all of these Old Testament rites and rituals with, with the shedding of blood and, and the sacrifice of animals, all these were, were simply types and shadows leading to the coming of the true sacrifice. And so Hebrews is going to continue to help us to view the Old Testament in light of its purpose, its intended, intended purpose. It's not as though here's this whole sacrificial system and then God says, well, that's not really working. Let, let's have another plan. No, this plan is part of this plan to send the son to, to die and then to serve as the high priest. And so that him as the high priest makes propitiation for sins. Did you notice who? For whom he makes propitiation for sins? It's of the people. Of the people. The, these are the members of the divine family, the many sons and daughters whom God is bringing to glory, like up in verse 10, or those whom Jesus is not ashamed to call brothers and sisters. They're Abraham's descendants, those of faith. Not only Israel's ancestors, but also the whole Christian community, both Jews and Gentiles, who share in Christ. These are his people, those for whom the sins are paid for. It's those who look to Christ in faith. And those are the ones, his people, those who are looking to Jesus by faith who ought to be encouraged by the suffering of the Son. In verse 18, he suffered himself, because, for because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He has suffered when tempted. Jesus, when he was on earth, he was tempted. He suffered. In fact, it was difficult for him. And because of that, he's able to help you when you are tempted. He's able to help you when you suffer. And so I want to close just, just with this good news, with, with this good news, which is actually good news for all. Whether you are a believer in Christ or you're not a believer in Christ, there's good news for you. So if, if you don't know Christ, if your faith isn't in Christ alone, if you're not looking to him for salvation, the good news is that the son became a man and suffered. He died that you might be delivered from death. He died that your sins might be paid for. He died that you might have a sympathetic, merciful, faithful high priest. He died so, so that those things would be true of you, but none of those are true unless you turn to Christ in faith. They're not true unless you are trusting in Christ. None of those benefits apply to those who don't approach Christ by faith. For apart from faith in Christ, you're not part of the family. Apart from faith in Christ, you're not a benefactor of his suffering. Apart from faith in Christ, you're not delivered from the slavery of sin and death. Apart from faith in Jesus, you will face death afraid. And so my plea with you this morning is to hear the good news. There is a merciful high priest. A merciful high priest who, who gave himself so that you might be freed. And so I want you to know, I want you to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. I want you to trust him. That, that's the good news for you this morning. But th it's not just good news for those who don't know Christ. It's obviously good news for the Christian it's good to be reminded of these truths, of, of this, this one that we worship. It's good to be reminded that God devised a plan to save us through his son. From all eternity past, in the mind of God, there, there's a plan to save fallen humanity through the suffering of the son. And that son, Jesus, took on flesh, became like us, and suffered and died, and he fulfilled the plan. That's good news. God loves you and sent his son to save you. It's good news that, that he partook of the flesh and blood in order to destroy the devil who has the power of death. That's good news. Satan, he, 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 can, he cannot destroy you. You cannot be separated from the love of God that's been shown in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you. 
Satan has no power because Jesus died and rose again. It's good to be reminded that, that we are delivered from the fear of death. We, we still are, are grieved when, when a believer dies, but we grieve with great hope because Jesus died and rose again to, to offer us hope and resurrection. It's good to be reminded that Jesus, the one who suffered and died, helps us. Do you need a friend? Do you need someone who understands? Maybe your spouse doesn't get it. Your neighbor doesn't get it. Your kids don't get it. Your coworkers don't get it. Well, you have a, a sympathetic high priest who's suffered and been tempted in every way that you are. He knows what it's like to doubt God's love for him. He, he knows what it's like to feel like everyone has forsaken you. He knows what it's like to, do, to be mocked, to feel all alone. He knows. And he can help you in your time of need. He is, he is mercy-filled and so you're not alone. You have a friend in the son who suffered. And even right now, he's interceding for you and for me at the right hand of the father. He paid for our sins and he knows our weakness. Your, your weakness isn't gonna drive him away from you. He's not, he's not gonna be disgusted by your weakness or your doubt or your mess up. He is faithful and merciful. And so brother, sister, the son suffered death in order to save you and me. And so we ought always be encouraged. Let, let's pray.